just throw out there and ask it as we move through the text. Because um, like I said, I'm not going to probably get to every single little you know, illustration or symbol or nuance of it. Um, but we'll, we'll try to get kind of the broad strokes. So, um, you know, if you haven't read it, skim the first half as we're going through it. And if you know got any questions, then kind of read ahead for next week. Because like I said, next week we'll kind of cover the second half. Um, um, let's see here. We'll, uh, it, it'll start off kind of slow, but as we, as we get through it, we'll see a lot of the imagery and a lot of the symbols and a lot of the themes kind of repeat themselves. So it'll start moving faster once we get through the first few chapters, I think. Um, I did want to recap just a little bit because, especially with it being two weeks ago, um, I know we covered a lot, of, <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot of information in class a couple weeks ago. And so I kind of just wanted to, um, like I said, go through the highlights. Um, I mean, the author, you know, it was written by John, likely the Apostle John. Uh, we talked about the context, you know, the audience, how that's super, super important to understanding and interpreting Revelation. Um, it's where I think misunderstanding the context leads to a lot of the, the misinterpretations of Revelation that we see. Um, we talked about kind of these different myths about Revelation, that it's the whole thing is not about us, that yes, we apply it to us, but it was not written to us. It was written as it says in the, the first chapter to the seven churches. So we've got to keep that in mind. Um, it's not a mystery code. That was one of the other myths we talked about in our first class. It's not a, some mystery code that was only meant to be deduced in the 21st century that's been you know, hidden for all these years. It's literally called Revelation. It was supposed to reveal something to the people right away about Jesus' uh, teaching. Um, speaking of, that, that is something that makes it unique. It is one of the very few, if not the only, uh, New Testament letter that explicitly says uh, who is writing it, who is writing it to, and that they kind of used uh, you know, John as a scribe. Um, just as an aside, we know at times Paul has in his letters as a little addendum sometimes. He says who's kind of helping him write the letter. Um, but this one, quite clearly, it says right off the top, the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So right there in Revelation 1.1, it's got like author, purpose, intent, and the audience. Um, you know, it was written, like I said, it, it is, even though it's a bit longer and it's got some unusual symbolism, it really does, and we'll see as we move through it, have a lot of patterns similar to uh, other New Testament epistles or letters. You know, it's, it's directed to an audience, it's got application, and... Uh, it was written in about 80 to 90 A.D. to encourage Christians who were going through a persecution. And that's why I think it has a lot of relevance to today. Because if we, if we look at that, the persecution in that time period that was written, it was not necessarily like a, a big drag them out of their houses and kill them persecution, but it was a lot of uh, social localized persecution. There was a lot of uh, rejection by society of Christian teaching, which I think, honestly, uh, is something we can relate to. We know that a lot of our teachings are a lot of uh, what we do as Christians that are being rejected in modern society. So not to, you know, play the victim card or anything too much, but when we talk about social persecutions or the difficulty of persevering, I think it has a lot of relevance to today. And like I said, we'll see that when we start getting into the text. Um, the, the big deal that we also talked about was the methods of interpretation. Um, th these are the different ways, kind of different schools of thought, if you will, that have kind of formed around Revelation. Um, there was the, the future, which is the idea that... Uh, Everything, everything in Revelation is going to happen in the future right before Christ comes back. That's, that's the futurist uh, perspective. The other one was historical, that uh, the, the book tells about different periods of history continuously from John's day to our day. Um, the other one was 
kind of purely symbolic or even philosophical, and that's that uh, everything, nothing is literal, none of it actually happened. Um, it's all some sort of similar imagery that needs to be decoded. Um, and that kind of focuses on the big picture ideas as opposed to the specific events or people that are talked about. Um, and then <clears throat> the other one that is close but not quite, I, I think, not a full picture, is called the pre, pre, preterist, which is like pre-tourist is kind of how it's spelled, which just means that everything has already happened, that everything was written and fulfilled uh, in John's time. And, and that one's really close. But as we start looking at the text, um, we'll see that there's a lot of stuff that, that is about the end of the world, that is about stuff that hasn't happened yet. Um, the one I see offered by a lot of uh, co commentaries or commenters that we would agree with probably, the, and the one we're going to hold to is called, uh, sometimes it's called the, the historical background. I've seen it called like a the synthetic or something like that where it kind of combines elements of these other ones. But essentially, uh, that it was written for people in John's day, but with principles that apply to all Christians, which conveniently is kind of how we read the rest of the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we know Galatians was written to the church of Galatia, but we still talk about it. We know Corinthians was written to the Corinthians, but when we have questions about orderly worship, we have questions about loving each other, we, we go to Corinthians. So um, really, really, the, the secret answer is we read Revelation kind of like we read the rest of the Bible, actually, really similarly. That it was, you know, we understand that it was written to a specific audience, but we try and take the stuff that applies to us, uh, it, take the stuff out of it and, and apply it to our day still, too. Um, we, we talked about a, a big deal with interpreting is that you can't, uh, it, it can't mean anything to you that it didn't mean to them. And what I mean by that is it, it was initially a letter. He does say it is from John to the seven churches in Revelation 1 4, you know, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And those are those were seven physical locations, those were seven congregations, those were seven real groups of real Christians who were dealing with problems that he, that he talks about. So those are not just, those are not symbols. Um, when we talk about interpreting things that are symbols and things that are not, um, there are sometimes the text tells us, uh, like Revelation 120, for example, Jesus says, hey, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, we don't have to worry, we don't have to wonder what that means. He just told us. Um, in the same way that the, when the letter opens and it talks about the letter to the seven churches, well, the part of the letter addressed to the seven churches, that's not, some, some people try, will try and view that as symbolic or, or sort of put their own spin on it. Um, but we kind of follow this interpretive principle that you've got to let the Bible explain itself. Um, any conclusion we come to can't contradict Scripture, right? If Scripture says this is what it means, well, I can't turn around and say, well, I don't think it really means that. Right, just like we would any other scripture. If, if Paul says do X, Y, Z, I can't turn around and say, well, Paul didn't really mean don't do that. We, we've got to kind of, um, so any conclusion we come to uh, can't contradict scripture. So um, an another idea is that you've got to let the simple explain the complex. And that's kind of what I was talking about a second ago earlier. The simple would be, you know, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay. Subject is John. He's speaking. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the seven churches. Where are they at? They're in Asia. We don't, don't, don't overthink it, I guess is what I would say on that one. Um, but there's, there's some texts, as we start getting into it, that are a lot more complicated than that. They just are. Um, like when we start talking about well, what, is, what does the trumpet wormwood mean? What does it mean that it turned the water bitter? And what does it mean that he, that he sealed the 144,000? Well, you've got to let the simple explain the complex. Don't, um, 
th that's another big mistake I see when people talk about different interpretations. They let the complex kind of, they let their imagination run wild trying to figure out what the complex means, and then they try and take that and, and with that preconceived notion, try and sort of decide what the rest of the text means. Does that make sense? Like why that's incorrect? The straightforward things, take them at face value. If Jesus says, like, like I said, in Revelation 1.20, he references Revelation 1.12 and he says, hey, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, then we don't need to wonder what the seven lampstands are. He just told us. So we'll kind of use that as we're walking through it and trying to figure out what these different symbols mean, what the, the seals and the trumpet and the angels and the creatures and all this business means. Um, so th those are just kind of things I threw out, interpretive guidelines. And uh, really, th those really echo um, in, in any part of Scripture. This is not a special, uh, special rules for reading Revelation. So um, I guess I'll, I'll pause, see if anybody's got any questions or if we're following along here because we're about to dive into the text. Uh, if you do, that's fine. I mean, it's <laughs> I expect we'll have a lot of questions if... I mean, it's a complicated text, so, all right, we're cool. Um, well, then we'll get to it. So, Revelation 1, uh, first chapter, it's pretty, pretty, pretty standard. You've got your, it, it opens about like any other New Testament letter. It's got the greeting, it's got why he's writing the letter, he's got who he's writing the letter to. You know, uh, 1 Timothy opens with saying, this is Paul, I'm writing to Timothy, this is why I'm writing. Revelation, pretty similar. He said, this is John, giving the revelation to Jesus. He told me to write for these reasons. This is who I'm writing to. Um, interestingly, uh, again, kind of much like we would read other letters, if you read the beginning of Paul's letters, um, they all kind of look the same if you glance through them. But if you dig into it, he'll tell you in the beginning of his letter, he'll kind of hint at what he's talking about. Similarly, in Revelation, um, if you kind of look past the, the generic parts of that look like a normal letter opening, we see a lot... And this is where it's unusual. We see a lot of equating Jesus to God. And that's not, you and I would say that's not unusual. And of course we wouldn't. You know, we believe in the Trinity. We believe Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all that. Um, but if you, if you look at some of um, Jesus, Jesus very rarely spoke of himself in this way. And I'm not, and I'm not saying, not that he did not. He did, but not nearly as often as we'll see Revelation talk about it. Because the purpose of Revelation, it seems like as I start reading it, is really trying to combine these ideas of the Messiah and the Old Covenant, Jesus and the Gospel and the New Covenant. Um, I know sometimes, even in Christianity today, we can have a hard time reconciling those things. Well, the Jews did too. <laughs> I mean, something that came up a ton when we were talking about all these other issues and all these other, uh, in some of our other studies of Scripture, is the, the difficulty the Jews or the early Christians would have had with someone saying, okay, take, what you, take the law I've already given to you, and now I'm giving you a new law. And they would have had a hard time kind of reconciling in their brain, okay, how do I know that's from the same God? How do I know that this is the same message? And, and of course, we can get into the miracles and the works and the apostles and the authority and all that. But one of the big, big points of Revelation is the emphasis of Jesus as the fulfiller of God's word. Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the, the anointed one of the, of the prophets of the Old Testament. It's, I think one of the reasons it was written last in its letters and one of the reasons it's last in our Bible is it's very much a uniting work. It's very much intended to unite it's like everything you've heard about God so far. Trying to kind of give us, kind of fill in the gaps, give us a full picture. Um, just 
just for an example, just like I said, right there, verse one and two, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. Um, verse two is he, you know, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's it's very clear that he is saying, yes, this is from Jesus, who is fully God. Um, it's it's very assertive about that. Um, it's got more references to Christ as as God, as equated to God than any other uh, section of Scripture does at one time. So, um, if you've heard any preaching from Revelation, it's probably been from chapters two or three, <laughs> more than likely. You know, don't be lukewarm. How many sermons have we heard about not being lukewarm from the church of Laodicea or the church that lost their first love? Um, so, the the next section. Is pretty straightforward. Uh, Revelation two and three, um, it's the all those letters to the seven churches. The Ephesus, pretty much the theme of the church at Ephesus is they lost their first love. They used to be Christians. Now they've kind of fallen to other things. Uh, we've got the letter to Smyrna, and he says, uh, you know, persevere even though life is difficult, even though you're in difficult circumstances. And that's another thing we'll see really early on is going to be a huge theme for the entirety of the book. Uh, persevere despite difficult circumstances. Next one, Pergamum or Pergamum. I'm not sure how to say that one. Uh, but he kind of tells them they've, they've mixed faith and morality. Um, one of his first words to that church is in Revelation 2.13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's pretty powerful imagery. <laughs> you are dwelling near Satan's throne. Um, he goes on to talk about how they've kind of mixed faith, you know, their correct, true faith with things that are immoral. Um, next, the next letter was to Thyatira um, very similar he says you've, you've confused or mixed the, the devilish things or immoral things or uh, things of idols with the divine with the divine truth with the real, with the real deal <laughs> you, you've, you've been led astray by fakes, by false prophets, false teaching um, letter to Sardis uh, almost totally dead you, you're he says, you, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You need to wake up. You need to be strong. You need, you know, they needed that song, Restore My Spirit. <laughs> That's what they needed. Um, next one, we've got the letter to Philadelphia, which is actually that they've been obedient and faithful. It's a good letter. So we've got some negative, some positive. Um, he says, you know, something that's repeated through a lot of these is, I know your works. All these letters are really... Uh, really emphasizing things these churches have actually done. I would, I would say that's another reason. We can't really view these letters as figurative. It doesn't make sense for these letters to be about what they're actually doing in their, like, their literal works if it's some sort of figurative illustration. You know, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, and then, of course, the one I know I've preached on and I think we've heard a couple times, uh, the letter to Laodicea. You know, you are neither hot nor cold. Uh, useless. They're not. They don't have function. They're not useful. They're not putting their faith to work. Again, back to that idea of, of works, of use, of function. Um, so now we got our waiters on, right? <laughs> it gets deep. Um, so chapter four and five, I kind of have dealt with these together. Uh, where all of these are talking about heavenly. Praise. We've got like throne room imagery. We've got imagery about the glory of God, imagery about worship, imagery about praise. Um, if we were to look at Ezekiel and Daniel, and I, I didn't pull a specific chapter, book, and verse uh, because I, one, I didn't want us to be going back and forth the entire time we're doing this, but um, 
if you're familiar, because it's, it's all throughout, like I said, Ezekiel and Daniel, this is really consistent with Old Testament descriptions of heaven. Um, so even though, I mean, he's talking about the throne room of God. He's talking about how the glory of God is so big it can't be contained. You know, they're, they're trying to describe something that our brains can't even conceive. So you've got, you've got a guy who can't understand the fullness of God now trying to describe it in very limited words and describe it to people who also can't understand the fullness of God. So a lot of imagery, a lot of illustrative. He's getting real creative. Um, he says a voice like a trumpet. Would that mean when God speaks it's just like a you know, French horn or something? No, probably not. What's a trumpet? Well, a trumpet's loud. It's blasting. Trumpets were used in warfare. They were a symbol of power, uh, volume. You know, when, when they would blow their trumpets, it would, the sound of that would kind of fill the room. If you can think of a sound, almost like a rock concert, the way that, that fills the room, he's saying, well, his voice was loud, it was powerful, it was commanding, it, it filled the room. Um, another thing we have in chapter 4 and 5 is this idea of 24 elders. Um, any, I guess I'll, any ideas on the 24 elders? Any thoughts on the 24 elders? Any guesses as to what that might be? Which what? Uh, chapter 4, looking at uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne there were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And we see the elders kind of referenced a handful of times throughout 4 and 5. How about the priest in the Old Testament prophets? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I would, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely some priesthood imagery there for sure because they're overseeing sacrifices, they're overseeing incense. Um, something I found that I, I think is probably, and I'll say this, there's, <laughs> like how I said, Revelation one twenty when Jesus says the seven churches, the seven lampstands, I can tell you pretty confidently, okay, when he says the seven lampstands, those are the seven churches. Some of this stuff is going to be like, this is my best guess. This is my best understanding. I could, we could find out at the end I'm wrong. And I'd be like, hey, sorry, I, <laughs> but we're doing our best. Um, I think what's going on is we've got the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And I think that because, like I said, I think continuity between the Old and the New Covenant is a big, big deal when we start working through Revelation. The, the unity of God, of God's message, of His one covenant, of, of how all Christians through all time are united. So I, I, from what I've read and from what I understand, I think the 24 elders is, is the 12 tribes of Israel, like one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then one for each of the 12 apostles. So you've got kind of the Old Law, New Law, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and they are on level with one another. If that makes sense. Um, if, we, if we look through chapter 4 in chapter 5, um, some of the creatures and the elders and the angels are saying uh, things like, Holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty. That's in chapter 4, verse 8. In chapter 4, 11, you know, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Um, again, if we look at uh, glimpses of the throne room of heaven, visions of heaven, other prophets' visions of heaven, this is pretty consistent with uh, Old Testament descriptions of just of heaven, uh, of God's power not being contained, and of heaven being a place of constant worship. So they're worshiping God. Um, because of that, I would guess, or I, I would understand, that those four creatures are some kind of angels. Um, if you look towards the middle of chapter 4, it talks about a creature that like, looks like an eagle, a creature that's got a face like a man, uh, a creature with uh, an ox, and then a lion. Um, 
But if we look at what they're doing, where they're at, um, that, that is consistent with descriptions of angels. It talks about how they had six wings, six wings and full of eyes. I have no idea what that means, but six wings and full of eyes, again, if we go back to Ezekiel, used a ton to describe angels. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I had a precious, precious moments Bible growing up. Everybody seen those? They're always like baby blue or bright pink. Um, it always depicted angels as like, you know, these cute little like babies. I don't know when that started happening, but if you look at the Bible, the Bible's got some insane depictions of angels that don't look anything like what we paint angels to be anymore. Um, full of eyes and six wings. I've not seen a single Bible that had a picture of an angel with six eyes and, or six wings full of eyes. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know why, what he's trying to tell us by the six wings and the full of eyes. If it just means they're watching everything, they're seeing everything, you know, if they're taking everything in, I, I don't know. But I just like to see somebody put that on a three-year-old's Bible, see how that goes. But... I guess that's just me. Um, well, now, this is something that John had seen. Yeah. Nobody else had seen it. And it, he, he's going to have to break it down to Christian people. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But it was the same vision that uh, Isaiah and Daniel and Yep. It's, all, all the old prophets saw the same vision. They saw the same angel. Yeah. I, I, I did not find something that talked about the, the ox, eagle, and man thing. But in terms of the six wings and full of eyes, that's something that's used a lot. And I don't know, uh, sometimes, sometimes in Ezekiel or Daniel, it says they got six wings, uh, two they flew, two covered their eyes, and two covered their, like their lower legs, which is probably like a discretion, modesty thing. But you know, two covered their top, two on the bottom, and then two with which they flew. Um, but yeah, like I said, it, it, it doesn't say that they're angels, but if we look at where they are in the throne room of God, what they're doing, worshiping God, and by some of the descriptions and other descriptions of angels, we can kind of put two and two together and say, okay, these are probably angels. Um, let's see. Uh, I did want to... Bible level, Bible level, talks a lot about the angels there and how many was there. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, countless, countless angels. Um, that's actually, I, I did want to read a section of this. If you look at chapter 5, uh, verses 3 through 9, I tried to pick out a couple verses from each one of these sections uh, that, that we, what we can kind of take away from it. Um, so in Revelation, obviously, chapter 3, uh, and I'll begin reading. Well, I, I'll finish verse I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 3. I think I said that backwards. But chapter 5, verse 3, um, they're about to open the scrolls. And an angel has asked, Who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? And no one in heaven, on earth or under earth, was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So... Just based on those four or five verses right there, what what do you think that could be telling us that might still? Because that's a section that I think that we can kind of look at and say that's 
true all time? Like, what is that trying to tell us? What do you think maybe that's trying to tell us there? Yeah, nobody is worthy to open the scroll. John weeps because no one's worthy. The elders say, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't test the reference to Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And then what about the lamb? As though it had been slain. So we've got Old Testament imagery of Christ and the New Testament imagery of Christ, right? The gospel, the lamb that was slain, lion of the lamb. Have you ever heard that before? Um, I mean, it's just, it, I think it's really emphasizing the uniqueness of Jesus, you know? It's really telling us that, like, he, he does things no one else can do when it comes to opening the scroll. I don't, I don't understand the scroll, but he says, no one on earth could open it. And they said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered that's a big, big theme we'll start seeing when we look at this. Um, I, I didn't stop to read it, but if you look at Revelation in chapter 1, th- there's, there's a repeated phrase that says, to the conquerors. And I think it's a lot about persevering when things are hard, and it's a lot about victory, and victory through the Lamb. So as I said earlier, we've, a lot of unity image between, imagery between the, the Old and the New Covenants. Well, we've got Lion, Lion, of the tri- Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, and he says, the lamb standing as though it had been slain. So Jesus is the lion of Judah, and he is also the sacrificial lamb. Um, and if we go on, he opens, you know, when he opens the scroll, the elders worship him, the creatures worship him. You know, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Um, so to him sits on the throne, blessing, honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. So that's kind of the, the worship scene in chapter 4 and 5. Any other thoughts or questions, comments, concerns, complaints about chapter 4 or 5? Okay. Um, next section I kind of grouped all together, six, chapter 6, 7, and 8. Um, 6, 7, and 8, we're starting to get more into it. You know, we've got some visions. Uh, the first six seals. So this is where... Uh, those interpretations that we offered earlier, this is where people start really arguing over what this, what's going on here. And so I told you we were going to kind of take this perspective. So I acknowledge there's other perspectives out there. Um, I'm not really, I'm not qualified, nor do I have the time, nor do we have the patience to debate all the perspectives and, and their merits. And like I said, I'm certainly not qualified for that. I'm just, the churches of Christ, the, you know, restoration churches and... Um, I would say most people we would agree with in general kind of take this uh, historical background perspective. This is, you know, it was written to those churches. It's not about specific times or places. We don't believe this is about uh, specific events necessarily so much as it's, uh, um, it's a message. It's, it's just like the prophecies of the Old Testament. It's saying this is stuff that's going to happen if people don't persevere, if people don't follow God, if people don't obey God. I'm not going to try and pin it down to uh, you know, an earthquake that happened at this date, at this time, by this person. It might be. You know, I'll even tell you, it might be. I, I'm, I'm not going to tell someone they're wrong if they want to say it's about that. But that's not the message, if that makes sense. The, the, it's, its message is not necessarily uh, who, when, what, where, but kind of the why. The who, the who is you and I. You know, Obey God so this doesn't happen to you. Don't worry about who it's happening to or why it's happening. Or, um, so anyway... John put all emphasis on Jesus Christ. 
Exactly, exactly. On the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, um, and as we'll see, those who persevere. Because we, we got more imagery about people who persevere. But um, something I do want us to notice, uh, all the six seals are, are kind of things that we view as everyday life today. And that might sound insane, but famines, earthquakes, fires, uh, disasters in other places, wars, um, that's, I hate to say it, but we would just kind of call that a Tuesday of news, right? Like, it's, um, I think the message there is, hey guys, like, it, it, I can almost imagine if the first century church is kind of on this church camp high, like the apostles who saw, who literally saw Jesus die and come back, are like, this is awesome, I'm feeling great, I'm always going to feel this great. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. In fact, it's going to get really, really scary uh, before I come back. And I want you guys to know that. And what I want you to know is when this happens, don't freak out. And what's kind of weird is I, the message of Revelation seems to be bad things are going to happen, but God is still in control, so don't freak out. But weirdly, <laughs> I, I almost see people do the opposite. They see bad things happen, so they go read Revelation, and then they freak out. <laughs> like, oh, it's the end of the world. Well, maybe. I don't know. There was an earthquake like last year, too. There was a famine last year. California's been on fire just about every summer I've been alive. <laughs> there's, there's been something going on for a long time. God's still in control. Um, so I would say these are all, uh, they're also all, the, of the first seals, I think the reason they're kind of grouped like that, they're almost all stuff that happens to man. Like they're, they're famines, they're natural disasters, they're, they're things that immediately and directly affect us. You know, violence, wars, uh, things like that. In, in contrast, if we start looking at the next section, and I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but we start looking at the next section, the next section is going to paint a lot of like, uh, a, a lot of stuff in nature. It's going to start talking about coloring the moon and a third of the stars falling down and a third of the earth going away and the night being shortened and the day being lengthened. And I'm not really sure what that means either, but it kind of seems like it's saying stuff on earth is going to happen and, and stuff that it seems like is right in your backyard is going to happen and then stuff that like you've never seen change before. You know, a day's always been this long. The moon's always been there on this time of year. The stars have always been in this place. So when that stuff starts happening, when stuff that's far away and stuff that you don't understand why it's happening, and that starts changing, still don't panic because God is still in control. <laughs> and he said, in fact, like, there's almost this, I hesitate to say allowing it to happen because I know that goes down like a, 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 a spiritual rabbit hole that I don't really want to chase right now. But he's almost, almost saying this is going to happen and it's okay. Like, don't panic when this happens. Like, bad things will happen before I come back. Um, look at, uh, let's look at chapter 6 and verse 9. We've got the seven seals. He's opening all the seven seals. And he kind of pauses between some of the seven, between, uh, I think, bef between the fifth and the sixth. And that would be in chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had, been bo they had borne. So martyrs, people who died for the gospel. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, 
there's kind of this interlude in the middle of the seals, and I think this is important because it goes back to that idea of persevering. It says, people are going to die for the gospel. And when people die for the gospel, it's going to be your instinct to avenge those people. It's going to be your instinct to want to do something about it, to get mad, to feel hurt, to feel really, really bothered. And he's like, that's okay, but wait. Like, if there's people who have died of the gospel, if there's people who have been persecuted for my name's sake, you know, Jesus even said, what did he say about people who are persecuted for his name's sake? Blessed, right? So he's saying, that's going to happen. Chill. Wait. Like that's, he's almost saying, I know that sounds scary, I know that sounds tough, but it's okay. Because he says, there's going to be a reward for those people. I think of all the time when we look around in our world today, a question I get asked all the time by people who are uh, maybe not quite atheists, but like have some kind of view of God, but aren't really sure. You know, they're kind of on the fence about it. So God thing. The question I get a lot is like, well, why does it seem like bad people get to do whatever they want and good people die young all the time? That's a valid question, right? I mean, it happens. You can't refute it. There's folks who get very rich doing very terrible things all the time. And there's people who try to do what's right, and it gets them killed. And the repeated message from the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, quite literally, is that, yeah, that, that's going to happen. And when that happens, don't be afraid. Don't let that discourage you from doing the right thing. Don't let that discourage you from sharing the gospel. Don't let that discourage you from living the gospel. Because you know what? Your reward is not going to be on earth. He says they were given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer. And we'll come back to them because he, he does come back to them and more happens. But he's essentially saying, like, you will have a reward. It's just not now. And I know when you see people dying for my name's sake and you see people dying for the gospel, your instinct is going to get mad and to be upset about that. And that's okay. But just know they are getting their reward. So I think of other verses that says, you know, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Right, that's that's consistent. That that's consistent with something we would read everywhere else in the Bible. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's that's why I kind of tried to read it to find stuff. Right. Yeah, they're not. They've not. Been, you would say have not yet been redeemed because judgment day has not come. Um, yeah, because they didn't ask, "Will you?" They said, "When." You know, when true. Yeah, how long? True. Kind of like I'm giving the white robe because they had no body, because they had no form at that time. But he said, just a little while longer, because there will be more of you that must die. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the white robe because I meant to talk about this when we were looking at the seals. Part of the seals of the horses. You know, and, and two things that we'll uh, I'll, I'll talk about next week, but two things that. Uh, or would have meant something to the Jews. Kind of like how we said, it, it, it can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. Well, I don't think they would have gone all Da Vinci Code in terms of like the numbers and the, the letters and what the, in between, between the lines. But something that would have meant something to them was like colors. Colors meant something. A white robe, actually same thing it means to us now. Purity, right? When I think of white, what's right? Purity. Red, what's red? Blood. Blood that was shed. Um, another one is numbers. And we'll, we'll get to the numbers thing next week. But... Uh, Numbers actually, like different numbers of things meant something to them. But th those are symbols that would have been immediately known to the people he was writing the letter to. Does that kind of make sense? So because we know what that would have meant to them, we can kind of try to understand it. But as long as we're, we're not making up these symbols. like we're not, We didn't make up that white resembles purity, 
right? I think everyone's probably kind of known that in their heads most of their lives. That's not a new. That's not a new thing. Um, so yeah, white, the white robes. Um, it, it's not probably twelve people kind of in in a resting place that he went down to and physically gave white robes. I, I don't know, but he's there's the purity there. It's the symbol of purity. Um, but he makes the picture in, in your head that and I saw under the altar. And that's like what's under the barbecue pit. <laughs> you know, there, there's no form or anything. Yeah. You know, there's the, the remnants of their, their body and their souls that they have, have suffered through that time. Right. Yeah, and I mean, what's... What's under the altar of the throne room of God? I have no idea, <laughs> right? That's like asking how many bricks are going to be on the road, right? I don't. I have no idea. Um, so you got to go about what we do know. And what, is, what we do know is that people are going to suffer. People are going to die for the gospel. And when they do, they will be rewarded. They just might not be rewarded in the timely manner that we would like them to be, unfortunately. Um, let's go to chapter 7. Chapter 7, we've got the 144,000. Um, so I kind of hinted at numbers, and uh, we'll probably pick up from this when we start next week. But um, when we talk about numbers having symbols, 144,000 is 12 of each, you know, 12,000 from each tribe. And, and there's, a, there's kind of a... Um, I wrote down different associations that we have with different numbers. Um, obviously, we know six, imperfect, a human number. And, and just to clear that up, it's actually rarely a so it doesn't really talk about it specifically as like the number of the beast. It's just an imperfect as a human number in contrast to seven, which is like a perfect or heavenly number. Seven days of the week, seven days of creation. Seven is used all the time to denote perfection or heavenliness. The lamb that was slain that we read about earlier had seven horns and seven eyes. Um, well, we'll, we'll uh, be thinking about what the 12,000 means. Come back with some ideas, I guess, because we'll talk about it next week. Y'all aren't allowed to know. To some has been given, to some has not been given. Right?